0: The following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show to find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future.
1: Good morning, you are listening to Zena Richardson and Scotty Foster, your host today with Behind the Lines on X Community Radio, 98.3 FM in Canberra. Sorry for the little extra music we had this morning, we're just trying something new with our technical here and we've got a couple of international callers, so we're uh, learning as we go, as we do on Community Radio. Well, this morning we have Michael Lewis who is calling us from uh, Victoria on Vancouver Island, BC, Canada. And- Ken Ross who's chatting with us from the north end of New Zealand and they're going to be telling us about the massive online open course toward Cooperative Commonwealth Transition in a Perilous Century. It's a free online course that begins on the 29th of January and I believe Scotty has taken this course so we felt that it was something we'd love to share with our listeners. It's a very valuable tool and certainly some great insights into some practical and applicable things we can do to have the change that is much needed. So Our first guest, Michael Lewis. um, He has been a leader in community economic development, uh, originally from finance, and he's worked with the social solidarity economy through various organizations that he's helped to found or create. Uh, Michael has led hundreds of projects over the last 40 years involving entrepreneurial development, organizing technical assistance, training in marginalized communities, organizing solidarity works, and designing tools and curriculum to strengthen community resilience. He's authored 13 books, Uh, mostly focused on practice, including the resilience imperative, cooperative transitions to a steady state economy, which he co-authored with another well-known name on our show, Pat Conaty. So we'd like to welcome Michael to the show, and uh, lovely to have you with us this morning, and then Scotty's going to do an intro for Ken.
2: Great. Good to be here.
0: (laughs) Ah, Excellent. Good to hear your voice. Uh, So Ken Ross holds a double major Bachelor of Science in Zoology and Geography, and a uh, An MSc Masters, I imagine, not having been to uni, uh, in behavioural ecology. This eclectic mix of subjects has shaped him somewhat intentionally as a human ecologist. Human ecology, how humans live within their lands, has been the theme of Ken's life... ...through careers in teaching, horticulture, tertiary and adventure education... ...the maritime tourism industry and community development practice... Ken has a deep understanding of the sustainability challenges facing humanity and the immediate impacts of our unsustainable living practices are having on the natural environment and essential human needs such as access to clean water, nutritious food and adequate shelter. Ken is committed to helping individuals and communities reach high levels of localised and democratic and economic food and power, sovereignty and security. So welcome Ken. Scotty.
1: There's so much content here. It's almost like where to begin. What is a cooperative commonwealth?
2: Well, it's, uh, it's a concept. Essentially, it's saying that in a world w- which we did not create, but which we've been gifted with, and then came into being a long time ago, the commons were the wealth that was created, which we were able to live from. A good part of that commons has been privatized and and excoriated and damaged. And the whole notion of towards cooperative commonwealth is to reclaim commons for uh, basic needs in a way that respects the limits of the earth and finds ways of bringing our way of being in the world back within those limits. So, in a sense, we have one planet. If we don't cooperate, the wealth that exists and is in danger and decline will be damaged, potentially beyond repair, and so we better figure it out.
0: Now, I guess we should uh, explain the roles of of Michael and Ken. So, Michael's been involved in creating the MOOC, or the Massive Online Open Course. We'll be using MOOC throughout the interviews. and Ken took the course last year alongside myself, and this year you're organising some study groups. Is that right?
3: I participated in the course last year, of course, and I've become a strong supporter of what Michael and team at Synergia and Athabasca University are setting about. I've been an educator most of my life, and I've been making these noises for a long time, and Back in the 70s, I was involved at a political level in a political party called the Values Party, which was the forerunner of our Greens Party here in New Zealand. And as a young idealist in those days, I thought it was really just a matter of sharing information and and getting people to realise how the planet worked scientifically through ecology and things like that. And people would have realisations that we weren't doing things very well um, according to the laws of nature or the laws that nature and the universe tends to work to. And it took me a long time to realise that it wasn't just an issue of ignorance that was part of the problem. There was another part to it, and that was the force within society or societies that was interested in keeping things as a business as usual. And so there were two things to overcome. One was ignorance, and the other one was the tendency for people to believe that what is happening isn't deliberate. And that's a really hard fence to climb, because what it really denotes is that a society that works like that is a very violent society. And so the use of Michael's words like commonwealth and things like that have have a pretty deep meaning for me, in that... Uh, We're all in this together. Nobody should have ownership of the Earth's resources because they're the gift of the planet to us and every other living thing. And we have to learn to share that in the best possible ways we can. And that's the commonwealth for me is to escape from this idea of proprietorship, ownership, having vast amounts in some sectors of society and never enough in others. So I'm really hopeful that by people lifting their levels of awareness and going to root causes in this study, because that's, that's the beauty of it, it's not just a look at the surface, it's a pretty deep dive into the causes and the MOOC takes you around the world, it takes you to many different countries, many different cultures and societies and there's a wealth of information there for people to get their teeth into and to participate in.
2: Yeah, in the Canadian context this year, in conjunction with the Canadian Community Economic Development Network, uh, they have been recruiting partners from different communities and sectors in the country. And so they have, I think, seven partners this year. And I'm guessing that they'll probably have at least 15 to 20 study circles with those partners. So that's kind of cool to see that evolving. And there's the work that Ken's been doing. I mean, amazing work in New Zealand. He has about 25 people in the north end of the island, and there's people in the south end of the island that are emerging. And there's groups in Britain and Greece, even Rojava, if you can imagine, that are coalescing around this idea of the study circles, which, of course, one hopes emerge into relationships that can foster and strengthen action in their communities or in their particular network. I met Ken through uh, a network in New Zealand called Catalyze, and that's where we met up, and then he just took the courses. Uh, Along with you, Scotty, last year, he just got turned on and tuned in and has been a natural organiser, doing great work to bring together people in his district.
1: Mm. When we talk about cooperatives and the commons and things like that a lot on this show every now and then we get someone who pipes up and says, look, I don't want someone telling me what to do with my land. It's my land. I bought it. I own it. I farmed it. I've built on it. How do you speak to someone that comes from that position that is not really understanding how the principle of the commons works?
2: Well, that's kind of a key question. I'm sure Ken will having something to say about it too. I mean, I lived on a family farm for 40 years, so I know exactly what you're talking about because that land was farmed by an immigrant who knew that it was to meet basic needs and that the private nature of the ownership was something that he stewarded in a way that anybody would be proud of. I think many small family farms would fit that, but that's not the world we live in right now in terms of private ownership of farmland. You know, Bill Gates owns something like 260 million acres of farmland the Yeah, farm I mean, at least he's the, the largest
1: largest holder of farmland in the world right now, which is a concern. Exactly,
2: and so it's really important to distinguish between the small holders and and landowners who are stewarding land. And I don't know the extent to which it remains true, given the crisis we're in. But still, small holders of people of less than two acres, we know are producing a good part of the food in ways that are sustainable. You know, but that's not happening as much in Canada and I think elsewhere, you know, the corporate side and privatization has been writ large. So that's the kind of thing that we would be more concerned with is how to protect the small landowners who are privately hold the land or who hold it in some kind of trust.
1: So this is also helping people to understand. It's not some sort of land grab where we'll we're trying to take land away and put it back into the commons, take it away from private farmers. It's trying to preserve the land and also prevent the rise of giant agro business, you know, acquiring all of the resources and then, not of course, not distributing it fairly across the planet.
2: Exactly, and uh, and in fact, within the course and in, in, in the second module where we deal with land tenure and its importance and its security, uh, the reality is is that a lot of smallholders and other people, even if they're doing industrial farming, are getting displaced. The land grab's going on, whether it's in Canada or Gambia, they're going on and they're going there for extractive
1: purposes. Mm, mm. So I heard, Ken, you were trying to jump in there. Yeah, there were two things I was going to
3: offer, Zena. One, one is that in this country, under New Zealand law, mm. A person doesn't own the land. They own the-, the title to the land, and that entitles them to use the land. Um, the the actual ownership of the land still stays in the ownership of the government. The other aspect that I wanted to point out is when people talk about owning land and and the right to use it in their own way and so on, we also need to consider how that land right. came to be owned in the first place. How did it become mm a part of proprietorship, and most of the land in this country, of course, was stolen from the Indigenous people who didn't have a view of land ownership in the way that we've got it. So it's a human construct that's been imposed on this country, and when you give it a good shake, there are some very big holes in it to begin with.
1: Mm, So nice analogy for all the sinkholes that we've created in that system.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, Michael, cooperative commonwealth is not a new idea. Can you give us a history of the concept?
2: I'm not an expert in the history of the cooperative commonwealth per se. The commonwealth, as we know it, as British descendants, and, you know, I know that part of the commonwealth pretty well. On the other hand, commonwealth, as we're talking about it here, our conception of commonwealth is rooted in cooperative history, and essentially it's... An understanding that that which has been brought into being by the miracle of the earth being alive and us coming into it, that is the commonwealth, which we have not learned, especially in the last few centuries, uh, how to live within. So the whole idea, in part at least with this course, is that we have to figure out the pathways to live within the limits, which we are not living within now in terms of ecological limits of the biosphere. And we have to learn how to meet our basic needs within those limits, which means a very significant change and significant challenges. Our hope with this course, and this is kind of the fifth edition now, is that we can help people struggle with the issues, be inspired by the examples of pathways that are being built, but also not trying to provide some easy tech way of getting out of the mess we're in. So uh, it does mean change, and it means change for, for all of us in one way or another. And within that, obviously, the systems we live within constrain our adaptation, We are hoping to deal in this course with the kind of basic needs and how we might meet them in a more localized and sustainable way that connects and bridges basic needs with uh, living within the limits of the Earth.
1: It sounds like that the common problem, and we've touched on this in so many other interviews as well, is that you've got a very small percentage of the global population that feel very entitled to own everything on a, on a private level. And they're fully aware of the harm that they're causing. It's not ignorance. It's, it's willful entitlement and selfishness. And they're the people that we need to overcome in order to make the change I think humans are really good at coming up with solutions you know like if you took the sort of psychopath leader equation out of it and you'd sort of let us figure out how to fix stuff we would and we'd do it really quickly so that I guess the other question is when you do the course when you do the MOOC and you come up with lots of great ideas for um, you know effective change and sustainability but you've still got this tiny group of people that you have to deal with that do exert tremendous amount of control over what should be common, you know, the commons resources like privatising water in, con- in countries where, you know, how do you privatise an essential resource like that that's been happening in South America prolifically. So, so does the MOOC go into addressing that sort of thing, like at solutions to dealing with this very small contingent of people that are at the pinnacle of the problem?
2: I've been involved you know, in political and systems change work for a long time, and I've been involved in transition work and working in all kinds of impoverished communities across Canada and elsewhere. And let me just say that, you know, this course started with a banner, which you've probably all seen, Mm -hmm. systems change, not climate change. Mm -hmm. And the heart of that banner is that the very point you're making, Zena, Right? Mm -hmm. That the system has become so much wealth and power at the pinnacle. 70% of the wealth and and income in the world is now in the top 10%. 50% is in the top 1%. So we know that. And we also know that we have an energy crisis. And we also know we have a climate crisis. And we know that these things are all linked. I think resistance and advocacy continues to be very important. We can't know the outcome, but we need to continue. And so certainly in the context of this course, aspects of resistance in a variety of different contexts are exemplified. However, we're not putting all our eggs in that basket, so to speak, from the point of view of the design of this course. That uh, relocalization, uh, s- supply chain issues, uh, challenges we face in the fact that climate is actually changing systems. <laughs> it's not just a question of stopping climate change at this point. It's, it's also re- re- related to adaptation. It's related to how do we deal with the fact that our lives are so tethered to fossil energy, Uh, And it's not a simple matter to transition off that. These are tough questions. You know, 10 years ago, total energy in the world was at 81% uh, fossil fuels. 10 years later, this year, it's at 80%. Hmm. We have not made much progress. In this version of the MOOC, we've... In our own learning journey, and coming to terms with this at a different level. So it, Scotty and, and, and Kent it's different than last year a little bit. Uh, and uh, it, it reflects the question of whether or not we're prepared or how prepared we are at different levels of society and in our communities and regions for dealing with some things that are not reversible at this point. We have embedded challenges we face. And, and so the whole question of adaptation and mitigation both remain absolutely important. As a very famous scientist who so I can't bring forward at the moment said every tenth of a degree matters. Uh, it matters because valuing human life and other life as a way of expressing intergenerational solidarity uh we're not stopping this thing in its tracks so that's the thing in this MOOC that we struggle with a bit more uh it changes every year as we're learning (laughs) and this year some of those aspects I just talked about are coming into play a bit more we're kind of on the journey with everybody else that's (laughs) taking the course in many ways uh and there's certainly people that are ahead of us in our understanding. So what we're trying to do each time is synthesize and find ways of making it accessible. And we've made quite a lot of changes this time from from last year. And hmm. that's kind of where we're at at this point. We're not selling solutionism. We are selling really innovative ways of meeting basic needs in a much more fair, and just, and sustainable way. They're concrete. They've been scaled in many aspects. They've got legs to them. But even the best of what we have is still facing the challenges of how we deal with your original question, Zina, about the political economy and who controls what. Thus, resistance continues to be important. And on the other hand, we're having to deal with the reality that we are going to have to adapt on a local and regional basis and shorten supply chains and and find ways of relating to each other that ensures basic needs
0: are met in a way that is more fair and just. Mm. Mm. Now, the old Buckminster Fuller quote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete, is uh, fairly pertinent here. And the course does go all over the world and looks at real concrete examples of where people have managed to organize as a society even, like in uh, Barcelona, and have made some of these changes, which I guess really are are cultural changes, aren't they? Well, I
2: mean, it would be interesting to hear Ken on this. Let me just say yes. I think our values, attitudes, and assumptions about life have been enculturated, into our beings, so I'm a boomer, and I grew up in the time of less than 2 billion people, and we were using very little fossil fuel compared to what we're used to today. So everything's been exponential, and we really are faced with cultural questions in terms of what we assume to be real. One of the things that we and Synergy and I personally have been trying to come to terms with this. There's so many narratives out there and there's so much pitching of solutions (laughs) that are more self-interested than necessarily productive in terms, in in, in a sense, remain extractive and don't really deal with the fact that we're in a crisis from, from a climate point of view and that we can't kind of just go on and think economic growth is going on forever.
1: It's not going to
2: mm. happen. It's, it's a finite thing. We yeah. on it, or so
3: we choose differently. Mm. Mm. Ken. When you were talking, Scotty, I was thinking of Arundhati's Roy's quote about the change is coming on a quiet day. I can hear it breathing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I've been involved in food security for a long time, being an ecologist, coming through horticulture and things like that. The greatest service for the area that I live in, in particular, and in this country in general, has been paid to the notion of food security by the COVID crisis. People are finally beginning to realise that the way that we produce food is a serious anomaly and that we have to do things differently. And so my work in the food security and food sovereignty space has become a lot easier than it was over the last few years than it had been for the 20, 30 years previous. So sometimes there are those little events that happen in society that give us, you know, it, and I'm not saying it was a lever because we, we didn't do it intentionally, but it gives us an impetus to make a rather large move at a time when people are ready. I see this breakdown has been occurring for a long, long time throughout humanity because there's the little clever monkey that became, you know, homo sapien. We've made some awful choices along the way, and those choices are really about me rather than us. And we've got to undo a lot of those choices if we want to continue as an us on this planet. It has taken a long time to create this situation, and it will take a long time to undo it. I sometimes forget that myself, and it's really hard to think that I'm not going to see any of these real changes because I'm just one of hundreds of thousands, millions of people that are going to have a part in affecting the change and steering the Titanic in a slightly different direction until it can come right round to 480 one eighty degrees. It is a long road. It's a it's a very very long game.
1: Mm. Well, you mentioned that um, you know, like a lot of these things, as Michael was also saying, you know, it's the fake solutions or the what I call the greenwashing solutions being a, appearing to make a difference but actually still very invested in in private interest and corporate interest so there was um a new theory that was put forward um probably about 10 years ago now uh predominantly driven by a gentleman called Greg Braden and he said look based on all of the recent archaeological evidence they found about really really old civilizations we talk like 10,000 years um where they're doing digs and they're finding other civilizations under existing digs, they said, look, there's evidence here that actually what was working in society was cooperation, not competition, and Darwinism is actually incorrect, that it's not been survival of the fittest and, you know, the the, the competition of the fittest. It's actually societies and species that were most thrivable were actually engaged, engaged in some form of cooperation. So potentially that, as human beings on the planet, we're hardwired towards cooperation and towards working in cooperatives like that would be our natural order of things and we've got just a very dysfunctional elite that um, are seeing things differently and obviously with their own personal vested interests and if you're a psychopath I guess you look at things quite differently Um, but that seems to be what we're um, essentially dealing with. We've got the the tools, the resources, the the ingenuity, the desire as a human being to create, um, you know, a cooperative society where we get along and we share and we have enough um, over this um, massive, you know, sort of toxic consumption model.
2: I think it's not either or; it's both. And I mean, Darwin, when he wrote *The Origin of the Species*, <laughs> he was definitely when they coined the term "survival of the fittest." That is the term that culturally was appropriated in the middle 1800s and became the basis for competition as the way of things. His his second book was called The Descent of Man. And that book, which was reflected on deeply by a guy named Ashley Montague, a book called On Being Human, which is very apropos to your questions, you know, uh, It said, well, yes, of course there's competition, but it only works within the context of a larger framework of collaboration and cooperation. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, ecosystems would not exist.
0: Yeah, very much like your your soil fungus (laughs) network, which now has been proven to transmit all sorts of things between trees and, and so on. Yeah. Uh, have they uh-huh. on, on this context? Have they actually sorted out the controversy now, whether humans or the naked mole rat is the most cooperative species? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, not, I, I, don't, I don't know. I the right question totally, but I, I think probably not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, we had um, a climate activist, quite well known in Australia, on the show about a month ago. Her name's Violet Coco, and uh, she was uh, arrested for having a peaceful protest about the fire, bushfire crisis, and the lack of funding and support to our fire services. And she held up traffic on the Sydney Harbour Bridge for 20 minutes. She got an 18 month jail sentence for doing that. And not, you know, sort of not that long ago, as you're aware, that there was. A corporation that basically blew up Rio Tinto blew up uh, um, an Indigenous heritage site, and uh, their their response was just oh we're sorry, and and just continuing on their merry way with what they're already doing. So this is where you've got this imbalance that I keep coming back to, and this is the part that I'm trying to figure out. Maybe it's my own searching for solutions of like you know if we keep coming up against people and organisations and entities I'll call them rather than people entities that just don't care and then you've got people like Barnaby Joyce you know our politician from the national saying that um he's just had a a young child recently and someone said oh don't you care about the world that your son's going to grow up in and his response was I'll be dead by then it'll be fine (laughs) like you know when you've got that kind of mentality coming from your leaders right he doesn't even care about his own child growing up in this world um this this is what I see is like to me is my my hurdle like if we can affect change we can come up with a solution we might even be able to implement the solution but is the solution going to be sustainable in the face of direct opposition like this yeah. and, and also why we keep yeah. electing people like
2: that yes well i mean those are questions that are in part unanswerable um but i think we all know we're on a track that it does not lead us in a direction that we need to go so the challenges where do we put our time and energy? And it's not just a question of we in the very personal me or just we in this call. It's a question of where's the weight of the energy and the priorities that are going to be advanced. And that has to be uh, something struggled for at every level, whether it's me as an individual, trying to sort out my own contradictions, <laughs> right? Or in terms of what we fight for politically. And there's no simple pathway to that. What, what for me, just to put it in personal terms, uh, has always been the case since the time I was, I think, 15, that the core question was, what am I going to want to see at the end of the road when I look in the mirror of my life? right? And I mean, I'm very personalizing this now. For me, that's been a sustaining way of taking several values and saying, I have to live my life meaningfully. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, (laughs) right? (laughs) Uh, At this point in my life. So, you know, meaning uh, uh, at the individual level becomes attached to the way we link up at the group level it's the thing that sustains community action i mean people like you too ken i know in new zealand i mean he's got a story that is very rich you know it, it's meaning attached to community and so on and that's a cultural shift and politically i think many people would say that you know if we just localize and we don't federate on a broader basis that is Connect with others to put forward the kinds of priorities we need with the vehicles we have to try and impact resource allocation, meaning public governments in part, and also the fight against dysfunction and in the last 20 years even greater consolidation of wealth and power Hmm. in, in a very dysfunctional context. And the last thing I'll say is that everything is tethered to energy everything is tethered to energy and we would not be in this situation we're in uh, good bad or indifferent without fossil fuels and we're not moving away from there so i think Zena, the question you're raising about cultural values uh transition we talked the last part of cooperative commonwealth in this course name is transition in a perilous century it requires us to be coming to terms with the challenges at an individual family group uh, level. But, you know, and that's important on the local basis and how we relate to it as a community and how we can, can meet more of our basic needs mm. at a more localized and regional level, which is one thing that we elevate, you know, throughout all of the basic needs areas that we cover, whether it's social care, precarious livelihoods, energy, the food transition, land tenure, how it relates to ecological restoration, how it relates to affordable housing, right? And how, you know, all of the the solutions that we actually can highlight in this effort are also embedded in all the contradictions because the solutions are seeking and have fought the battles but they haven't been generalised across the globe, that's for sure, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Or even within a country, even though they're getting real results that are recognised. So uh, we can't I, leave the
1: politics away the innovation. Yeah, I think Ken, Ken wanted to jump in there. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah.
2: Hmm.
1: Seven years ago, I, I read something that
3: was written by John Risticus, who's one of the, the founders, along with Michael and, and others, of the Synergy Institute. And it was a paper in which John talked about a journey through Italy and the cooperative system that he encountered there. And my wife and I tracked some of John's steps in 2016. And the highlight of that journey through middle and and northern Italy was the area of northern Italy called Trento, an area of a half a million people. Michael used the word federation, how we have to come together together. There was the most incredible federation of cooperatives in that province or region of Italy. In that 98% of all the agricultural activity that took part in that part of Italy was connected into the cooperative system. 66% of the banking was owned by the cooperative system. And, and the, the statistics just go on. They're mind-boggling how the people of that part of Italy have shown what is possible when you come together and work together and make cooperatives of cooperatives and, and knit the society and the commerce and everything together. It was mind-blowing.
1: Yeah, it'd be amazing to ask them too how they dealt with the situation with the mafia wanting to control everything in Italy. Like I've had a lot of friends from Italy who've tried to set up sustainable businesses and it's just been a huge battle dealing with that syndicate there. So i would be amazing to hear what their solutions were to, I imagine they were approached when they tried to set up that, things.
3: Yeah, the, the mafia don't seem to have much of a hold in middle of Italy and in northern Italy there doesn't seem to be a problem.
2: One of the things that's featured in the whole social care and the partner state, the Italy example is an important one. Because the social care model that is multi-stakeholder brings families, workers, uh, professionals, and community members together into a cooperative framework for dealing with people with mental and, and alcohol and other kinds of disabilities, Drugs. Into a, if you will, a caring a circle formed as a multi-stakeholder cooperative that is now is huge in the country. It's a major force in terms of social care, and the quality of care is going up. The cost of care is gone way down from what it was, and it the, the bureaucratic approach to social care that still exists, but not at the same scale, just can't even begin to get the results that they're getting. So. It's also elevated there in the social care field, not just the food field. And that particular innovation has been transported into a variety of different other countries where the state began to understand and the push from the bottom vis-a-vis people who were just not at all happy with the care that their children or their loved ones were getting. You know, and it's extended into elder care, it's extended into alcohol and drug rehabilitations, it extended into mental health areas, and it's it's an amazing example of what's possible at scale. And certainly, yeah, the agricultural side in Trento twin that in a different sector. So it's kind of what we're trying to get at. What are the things that are really promising? What can we learn from them? There's no magic solutions, but having ways of being able to understand what some of the key innovations are, how they've been slowly spread, how they've kind of emerged into movements, how they've become able to articulate and actually change legislation and policy, you know, as part of it. But that's a story that's kind of been going on for 50 years. And one of the things I ask myself is, well... This is a different fifty-year period we're going
1: into, yeah, yeah. right? And accelerated. Yeah. Everything is, as you said, like talking about the um, you know, the boomer yeah. boomer population, you know, and being two billion, and then you know, like around that time, and the energy usage, and now here we are, not that far uh, in, you know, ahead um, with, uh-huh. you know, like the, the exponential growth is just almost mind-boggling, and I guess a lot of it has to do with our leap in technology too, the things we can do now with technology just makes consumption so much more um, readily available for people. And even that, we get down to the tech itself and, you know, the mining of precious metals to um, create our tech and all of that and all of the problems that go with that. But, um, you know, Ken, I'd like to ask you um, a question because you work um, as a community development advisor at the Far North District Council in North Island and New Zealand. That's yeah. sort of touching on council and legislation and sort of you know local government how have they responded to your ideas and the things that you'd like to put forward and some of the things that your study circles are doing has has there been receptivity to that have they been open to implementing some of these things
3: i was hoping you wouldn't ask that
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing is there are there are people who are in the elected membership, they're <laughs> councillors of council who I've been working with for, for a number of years. And most of that work actually has to be under the table because I'm a very small cog in the organisation. I try not to hold any positions of responsibility because positions of responsibility come with, with awful um, compromises. and And so I'm not supposed to have access to these people so we tend to do our work um, a wee bit undercover, if you like, and we've been working together for, for quite a long period of time. But within the, the hierarchy of the operational arm, it hasn't been very successful at all. For instance, we've only just started to produce a, a, a policy on climate change. There was something that I was trying to push, back in 2005, 2006. So I can't claim any success in that area. And the same with the food security and the water security. There's a lot of deafness in very hierarchical organizations, but there are always good people in community. And I believe there are good people in the elected part of our council organization who want to do the best for their community and they're open to learning and finding different ways of doing it because they know that the the business as usual is not just not working, it's actually taking us towards the abyss. So I, I stay hopeful.
1: Well, you're still there doing it, so you must people. be hopeful because yeah, you're well, still I pushing. At the moment, yeah.
3: <laughs> I go back on the 7th of February and, <laughs> and find a new... Um, corporate structures. So whether I'll have a job or not, I don't
0: know. Yeah. Mm. We'll see. I guess that reminds me of the other great old saying that uh, if you want a politician to lead, form a parade and they'll just naturally make their way to the front. And I guess that that's, uh, there's uh, a great um, example of that in Barcelona, isn't there? Do you want to tell us the story of Barcelona? Yeah,
2: yeah. So in Spain, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but In Spain, there was a, uh, number one, there was a huge political movement that was kind of uniting progressive forces. And in Barcelona, like many urban areas in the world and for a long time, as a very choice city in Europe, was experiencing... More and more lack of affordability, more and more evictions of poor people, more and more consolidation of properties by people who already had money and who made a lot of money through Airbnb kind of status in one of the biggest tourism centers in in Europe. And out of that, the housing resistance movement that was nonviolent but direct action emerged and uh, a woman named Ada Calau was uh, one of the leaders in this resistance movement, and she was arrested many, many, many times, as were many, many, many other people, for essentially blocking takeovers of buildings. Anyway, Ada Calau then uh, uh, ended up running for the mayor of Barcelona, and with the kind of combination of the political awakening in Spain, kind of post-dictatorship and, you know, ongoing organizing. And the way that reflected itself then in Barcelona at the local level, they put together a a political party and she ran for mayor and won. And actually, we feature in the MOOC a video of her when she took on all of the senior bankers and basically saying you guys are doing nothing but financing impoverishment, greasing the wheels of your own pockets and for those of the corporate folks that are taking over these buildings. She then advanced a policy that as I recall, essentially there was only so much time that uh, people could leave all of these apartment buildings empty, or they would be uh, nationalized at the municipal level. (laughs) Anyway, it it, it was so interesting. I'm not sure it solved all the problem. It was a huge movement of resistance, and it took on the power, and it made real headway. It had impacts on the local political environment for many, many, many years, and uh, they had some wins. It hasn't solved the whole problem, but that's a good example, that one, mm. that is featured, uh, one of the ones that's featured uh, in a very brief way, but very powerful way. Mm.
0: Yeah, we're going to to change tack a bit with the time we've got left. And if people are thinking, wow, this sounds like a good course, how, how does it, well, I guess you, you've got some partners this year that uh, have helped to make the course free.
2: Yeah, well, you know, uh, really this course has been all volunteer for seven years. None of three people or four people that have been involved in giving leadership to it have never been paid. We do pay technical people. Athabasca University has provided a bit of money. But the Canadian Community Economic Development Network, which is a national network that, you know, I spent many years helping put together three years ago, uh, we approached them and said, look, at, um you know, We'd really like to try out uh, and work with you and see whether or not we can put together something that would actually get some money into the network and also bring some income into Synergia Institute, which is the group sponsoring the MOOC. So anyway, we went, we talked, we put together a framework, and we got money. And so they have money for staff, a staff person who's absolutely amazing. They're organizing partners. Uh, they're recruiting partners from their membership and others. So we tried it last year. It was kind of a late start. So, you know, there were some real great things that happened in the island of Cape Breton as a result of these study circles and people getting connected with each other. And even though it's a relatively small island, they really strengthen relationships. And this year... With a new staff person inside the national network, they've got seven partners, and I don't know how many study circles are going to come out of us. It's pretty cool, and I've certainly been talking to people in Australia about, oh, well, what do you think? Could this kind of work in Australia, you know, as a way of, you know, you guys, uh, uh, you know, organizing, recruiting, building the network, strengthening the work, uh, could that work? I think it could, um, and so you know those discussions have started, and and and, and uh, there's this year there's there's study circles emerging in, in Greece and the work that the, and wrote Java actually, which is really interesting, uh, in Britain, in Ireland, in Canada, in the U.S. and And and, yeah, a global university that uh, that whole Kurdish movement is involved as well, they're becoming involved. So who knows where this is going to go? You know, it's like everything else in my life. You just, you start with the values, you go... I've never, I've never had a job in my life. I just, <laughs> I just, I just I, yeah, I've been following the values and seeing what emerges, and uh, you know, just working hard at it. And so have these other people that have been part of bringing this into play. So I, I, I don't think it'll work in the long term unless it becomes federated and becomes this, co- this little cooperative we have becomes something that's uh, people have ownership over and uh, have common values and you know, would we'll do the best we can, bring meaning into our lives, our contributions. And I think we may have the basis for better rating something that internationally could be, uh, you know, a useful contribution over time and, and develop other kinds of educational resources in the process that are kind of rooted, if you will, in the realities we're facing. And they bring hope as well as a realistic view of what we're challenged with.
0: Yeah, and I guess at this point I'd like to put in a bit of a plug that Co-Canberra or Co-Ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, the organisation that runs this show and and several other things, would be really keen to get a local study circle in Canberra together. So if anybody out there is interested, uh, email info at co That's info at co and we should get together.
2: Right. But that's great. Yeah. Absolutely. That would be wonderful. And uh, and there is a study circle going to be happening in Austria, actually, with uh, the staff of Next
0: Economy, I think. It's, Amanda uh, Cahill, Virginia, yeah. yeah. Her, so,
2: her staff group, yeah, Amanda Cahill. We'll
0: yeah. have to get Amanda on, actually, yeah.
2: It's really quite easy if you got the interest. Certainly everything we're doing this year, which will be much better than last year, Scotty and Ken is you know the whole group formation stuff and so on we're supporting a whole lot more and i think both for people who just want to come into the mooc and be formed into a group that is absolutely going to be well supported this year and for those people like boy if you could get people together in canberra and just like Ken's getting people together in, in the north end of the island. I don't know how many study groups Ken's going to have, but <laughs> he's got about 25 people already organized.
1: Well, this might be Ken's new threat. role if he doesn't stay with the council. This might be the, the calling that's that's uh, got the louder voice, Ken.
3: Yeah, I'm listening to that calling. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs>
1: um, so just to give our – we're almost out of time here, but to give our listeners a sense, look, they're saying, look, I work full-time, I've got a family, I've got all these other commitments, but I really want to do something like this. Well, I really want to be involved. Can you give
2: us yeah, an idea well, quickly? I think, you know, everybody can do it at their own pace. Different from last year, we had two weeks for each module, three hours a week. This week we have three weeks for each module of two hours a week. Mm-hmm. And the third week, depending if people are taking it on their own or they're going to take it as part of a study circle. And, of course, some people will put a lot more time than that into it. But you're looking at essentially one module for six hours over three weeks, and that includes time for posting on the discussion board. If You may be just a harvester and you want to go through the material on your own. You know, if you can get people in Canberra hooking up with a study circle – we can certainly do our part in making sure it's identified in our system and and you guys go on and we'll support you in whatever ways we can, but most of it's already designed in and built into the MOOC, so depending on how many people you get, you may want to, you know, we're saying five, six people in a study mm-hmm. circle is good, but if you got got 25 people, as so I've been saying to Ken, you may want to break them up and then... Come together every three weeks for a party, you know, and talk about what you
1: learned. <laughs> it's sort of a check-in thing, yeah. Well, I like that you've got those seven modules you just discussed, but the eighth module is quite significant too. Like this is like an additional two weeks um, in which the participants yeah. would. Yeah. Yeah. Basically... So here's
2: the deal. Yeah. Uh, this time, I mean, it's seven modules. Now we do have certificates that would be issued by. Athabasca and Synergia together.
1: And that's Athabasca uh, University, uh, right?
2: Yeah, those are just, they're not they are not for credit, but they're kind of certificates of completion. So people people can also take, you know, there's seven modules and then the eighth one you're talking about, but if people can kind of, we're, we're trying out a different experiment, people kind of select the ones they want to do. Uh, however, uh, hopefully people will take the seven uh, uh, if, if they have time. If they don't, you know, you can still dance through the course and look at the areas that are interested, and I think you'll find yourself going back to look at other things. And the eighth module is, uh, you know, for people that want a full certificate, but also there's a master's level credit, university credits, that's uh, also available through Athabasca University, And there's requirements for the certificates and so on and so forth with the master's credit. But that eighth module will definitely have to be completed for anybody that's getting a master's level university credit.
0: Mm, And that's a synthesis of the whole course, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, but it's not too weighty. I mean, they they, they don't have to be, yeah, or, or what they choose. There'll be reflection questions kind of. Built in, and certainly anybody that d- decides to do it, you know, will be supporting. Uh, you know, I don't know that I'll be supporting because I never, I, I hardly made my undergraduate degree, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no. So on that master's level credit, for those that are interested, it's only it's, it's only like three hundred. They're only charging the administrative course from the, uh, the administrative costs from the university at three hundred and seventy dollars or something yeah. like that Canadian. Brilliant, much even cheaper Australian.
1: Yeah. yeah. So that's almost our dollar is almost par and par with yours. We're quite close, so they can sort of do that exchange. Yeah, and, rate. and,
2: and this year we're doing it free, right? Because uh, uh, we tested it for you know some charges last year, and we're doing it free this year, and so. Yeah, because we got a little bit of money in the kitty and building building up a bit of working capital. So Wonderful. maybe all of this effort will, will will come together in a way that will allow it to keep going in the long term. Right. So you begin,
1: So I was going to say the date of the course is uh, January 29th it starts. And how can people register for that?
2: Uh, well, they just go to our webpage, uh, which uh, is uh, www. Synergia, S-Y-N-E-R-G-I-A, institute.org, and uh, everything's there on the website, and you can register from the website, and, you know, for Ken and for you, Scotty, and uh, Next Economy, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll give you further instructions if you come together as the study Circle. Brilliant. Yeah. In mm. terms of how to deal with some aspects of registration.
0: And who is it for? Is this for people who are just breaking into this whole concept and these ideas or for, for people like Ken who've got a wealth of experience?
2: You know, there's people people can go at their own pace. So you don't have to be intimidated. Last year, I had one young person. Honestly, God, she went through the whole course. She was 23 years old and she was on a special program called Create Action to try and give her work experience. She did the whole course, you know, and other people who've got, you know, PhDs coming out doing do yin yang, right? So it's it's accessible to people at whatever the level is, right, that they're coming into it. And there's no pressure, right? Uh, then whoever you are, you're going to learn. I don't care whether you... I I'm, I learned a lot last year, <laughs> you know. Uh,
3: you, I've been doing you this. You create your own learning. <laughs> yeah.
2: What's that? Yeah. Oh, man. I'll you tell do. you. It's just great. I've never... It's, it's, yeah, I'm going to die learning. I hope yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, good luck, you guys. I mean, I just think it's wonderful. And, you know, I've just been so inspired by what Ken's doing. It's, I've been... I've been using UCAN as an example of what's possible. For
3: I've, been, like, I've been inspired uh, by what you're doing, Michael, and using you as an
1: example. Well, isn't that the best way? That's that's the cooperation piece right there. It's,
3: it's cooperation. mutualism, yeah. is its piece. Yeah.
1: Well, I'd like to thank you both for putting up with our technical issues at the beginning of the show and for taking the time out of your day. I know it's um, a couple of hours ahead of us in New Zealand there, and it's uh, Thursday afternoon, I believe, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. How there, Michael? Yeah, yeah, yeah you got that, yeah. 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 Uh, any Any uh, snow in uh, Victoria, or just lots of rain yeah. right now? You got any snow in Victoria, or just lots of rain?
2: You know, they very seldom get snow here, but uh, uh, before Christmas. Uh, my car was completely buried.
1: Wow! In snow. Yeah, it was unusually.
2: And it was gone. Gone three or four days later because the
1: rains yeah. came. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, unusually a snowy winter there on the west coast of Canada this year. I miss it. I miss it. I miss my white Christmas. Anyway, I wanted to thank you both for coming on the show. Michael Lewis from the Synergia Institute uh, calling in from Canada and Ken Ross from the uh, north end of New Zealand calling in. It's been a real pleasure. We hope to catch up with you again soon in the future. Thanks for the
0: opportunity.
3: So. Thank you. Thank
2: you for being on, Ken. That's great. Thank you, okay, Michael. Scotty. will well, see you soon.
0: You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound. The podcast made by Co-Ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NENA, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system, so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines 98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au, where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au. That's dot a.org.au. Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up Liberapay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks!